Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. And today, I am very grateful because I have with me Lisa Orbe Austin. Lisa is a psychologist and executive coach, as well as an author of Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt, and Succeed in Life. Whenever I have conversations with MBA students, and even alum for that matter, the topic of imposter syndrome always comes up in so many different ways, whether it's in the classroom, uh, whether it's in the job search, or just whether it's just being an MBA student or alum. This is something that is pretty common, uh, I think not just with MBA students, but with many of us in life. And Lisa's book, as well as her work, really unpacks what imposter syndrome is and, and what we can really think about and what can we can really do um, to help manage through that. And I am very grateful because I reached out to Lisa because I heard her on Jesse Hempel's Hello Monday podcast. I saw that she was a fellow BC alum and she kindly responded and reached out. Lisa, first and foremost, thank you for being here today. I guess maybe just to start, just tell us a little bit about yourself. What did you do? What do you do? And how did you get to doing what you do? So I'm a psychologist and executive coach. And I guess a lot of people are confused about how those things intersect. And I'm actually a counseling psychologist. And so one of the things, one of the ways that counseling psychology split off from clinical was that we in the 1950s, after World War II, were some of the originators of career development testing, vocational appraisal, vocational development. So we have been theorizing and developing tests and other things related to career throughout the entire process of the development of our field. And so I think a lot of people don't recognize that, but that's we get trained in testing. We have vocational externships. We, we are trained extensively in career. And so for me, it, it was a quite of a, nat- a natural progression to go into a career route for I actually really hated it in school. I thought it was really boring and very academic. But I think when I met my husband, I met my husband at a career center and he really helped me to see that the professional is personal and the personal professional and saw the intersection of identity and career. And that's like how I got excited about career development and working with folks on issues related to both the psychological aspects of it, but also um, the career development aspects too. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. I'm curious then, what now that you study careers and now you study the intersection of all of this, what did you want to be when you were growing up? What careers were you interested in or excited by before you stumbled into this path? Yeah, I I, I wanted to be a pediatrician my whole life. <laughs> so since I was six, I wanted to be a pediatrician. I remember it very clearly and all the support that I got from my family around being a pediatrician, being a doctor. My parents were immigrants. So the idea of a doctor in the family was really exciting. And but it wasn't until I got to BC and I was a bio pre-med student and I practically failed out of school. And they was doing really horrible. I had like a one seven GPA. And I remember meeting with the dean um, of arts and sciences and and he was he was like, you gotta figure something out. He's like, if you want to stay here, you've got to figure something out. 
And I was like, oh, that's super helpful. And my parents really didn't go to college and they didn't really understand how to navigate it. They just were like, study harder, work harder. And it was like, I am killing myself and it's not going well. And I remember at that time really feeling, okay, my parents are out of their depth. They don't know how to help me. I've got to help myself. And I remember thinking, okay, what am I good at? What am I doing? It was English. I was doing well in my English class. It was the only class I was doing well. And I was like, I'm going to change my major to English. And at that point, I then changed my major to English and my parents were very disappointed and upset. And I remember my father saying, I don't understand why you would pick an English major. You speak English. And it was like, it's not quite what an English major is. But and he was very angry that I had moved out of pre-med. And he had said to me, if you don't get a 3.7, which I don't even think he even understood what 3.7 was. But he was like, if you don't get a 3.7 next semester, we're pulling you out of BC. And so I was determined the next semester to get at least above a 3.7. I got a 3.9 and was able to stay. And so I thought at that point I was going to want to be a, a writer. And then around my senior year, I had all these senior level seminar classes. One of them was in, was in uh, prose writing, fiction writing. And I was, we, were, we had an outside professor, a visiting professor, come and speak to us or come and teach the class. And she had published many books and she hated my writing. And it was a brutal like semester where everything was like criticism of my, my writing and my story. And it was really a very brutal time. And then I decided at that point that I wasn't going to be a writer and that I was going to have to figure out something else. And I remember having been an RA and I was like, I love counseling people and helping people and maybe I should be a therapist. So I decided I'd pursue a master's degree in, in counseling and test out whether or not that would be right for me. And actually, when I moved, I went back to BC and got a master's at BC. And when I moved back to BC, I remember going into a bookstore on Newbury Street, on Barnes & Noble on Newbury Street, and looking at that, prof at that professor's books and seeing if she put out anything new. And she had actually put out a new book. And the book was actually the story that I was telling in that prose writing class. She had actually taken that story and made it into her. So it was an interesting moment for me because I was like, you know what? I don't think I would want to go, even if that story was good and I could have published it, I don't think I want to go back into that environment because if that's what it's like, I don't, I won't survive it. And then I pursued a master, then I pursued my master's degree and, and after that, my PhD. And, and it, it has been my home ever since psychology. And so I'm very much in love with the discipline. Yeah. Thank you. I'll hold um, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that. Thank you for unpacking that a little bit. So one thing that strikes me is as you talk about the things that you were pursuing in the past and you think about where you are now, right? You talk about uh, being an English major. You wrote a book. You, you talk about wanting to be a pediatrician. And I presume some of that is trying to get people to get healthy or, or helping others. That's certainly what you do right now. I'm just curious, as you think about where you are, obviously you didn't end up becoming any of those things, but they still show up in who you are and what you do each and every day. Is that? Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like those pieces of me are manifest in what I do today. And definitely I've been a very much a part of it. And it's weird to think about it. at six, I might have <laughs> had some clue about what I was actually really good at. And so yeah, yeah, they do manifest themselves. And I think I, it's a good reminder that the what feels like accidents or, or mistakes or career like kind of path deterrence or whatever, like those things can really add up to being a really fulfilling career, even if that particular avenue doesn't work out for you, those skills are transferable, those experiences are transferable, and that nothing is really lost, you know? Yeah. So let's talk about imposter syndrome. When did you start studying it? And how did this come about? 
Sure. I guess I've always been interested in imposter syndrome, I think, because I've struggled with it myself. So I've always been interested in reading about it. And actually, we were writing about it like on blogs and different forums. And then I think it was through that that our publisher had reached out to us and was like, I see you guys are writing about this topic and we would love for you guys to write a book on it. And Richard and I, when we were talking about it, we're like, one of the things that I think is missing in a lot of the literature on imposter syndrome is what to do about it. What can you actually do to shift it? And there's a lot of discussion of what it is, how it shows up, and but there isn't a lot of, of stuff about what, how you can intervene on it, what tools and skills do you need? And if we're going to write a book, let's do something that actually makes a difference to change it. And so that's how we thought about the book. Is the, and then our publishers were so cool, and they just were like, "You're the experts. Do what you want to do." And yeah, that's uh, that's great. And I guess just as let's go there. So could you tell us a little bit more about your book? Again, it is "Own Your Greatness: Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self Doubt, and Succeed in Life." Outside of your publisher beating down your door and telling you to write this, what really caused you guys to write this? And could you just talk a little bit about what what you explore in the book? Yeah, so I think one of the reasons we're so interested in this topic, besides my own personal interest, was that most of our clients also struggle with imposter syndrome. And so it's been fascinating for us to talk about with each other about what are we seeing? How does it look like? What are the interventions that are working for you? Because my partner is also a psychologist and executive coach. It's been really a phenomenal kind of like experience to constantly talk about this. It's something that's always on our minds. And so the book was about is a program. It's in essence a nine step program workbook to actually work on the tools that you need to adopt to actually shift the experience of imposter syndrome for yourself. And so it's all these tools built into the book and you practice them across, uh, throughout the book. Yeah. And I, I was able to read the book before we jumped over the past couple of weeks and thought that I totally agree. There's a lot of tactical and actionable things in there. But as we talked a little bit about before we started, imposter syndrome really is something that I think a lot of MBA students, it's top of mind in what they're experiencing. I mean, I probably seem similar to many of your clients. Many of these people, they're there because they want to improve. They want to get better. They want to make career changes. That can be often you know, really challenging for a lot of different ways. I would love to maybe just have you maybe just break down what is imposter syndrome? syndrome and what are some of the ways it, it shows up? So imposter syndrome is this experience when you're highly accomplished, achieved, have credentials, experience and skills that you have not internalized, that you're constantly feeling like you're going to be found out as a fraud or incompetent. And as a result of that, you either overwork or self-sabotage to attempt to cover the fear, the perception that you're going to be exposed as a fraud. And so that's the general gist of it. And I think that the reason why I think people, you see so many people with it is because I think the stat is about 70% of people in, in the country have experienced imposter syndrome. And I think I saw a recent one in, I think I saw 82% was a, was a new recent study I had seen, um, which is much higher. And I think KPMG did a, a study in 2020 saying that they saw about 75% of their female executives with imposter syndrome. It's pretty significant that it, it, and it's not a mental health disorder. It's not a pathology. It is a phenomenon. And Clance and Imes, the two psychologists that discovered in the late seventies, they have always been very like adamant that it be referred to as a phenomenon and not a syndrome, but uh, very commonly we call it imposter syndrome, not imposter phenomenon. Sure. Sure. So one of the things that uh, struck me in your book, and I think is important as you talk about just how many people have experienced 
this at some point in your life is just this idea of naming something and naming it. Can you share maybe why that helps or why that's important? I think one of the things that I see on my social or when I'm talking about it is people just are like, oh my gosh, I have been thinking that for so long, I was I was this really disturbed person who, who felt these things that I, don't, I didn't share with anybody. And now it has a name and now it's so common. It, it feels freeing to know that it's I'm not alone and that it's something that is also, which I'm always emphasizing is conquerable, that you can actually address it. It's not, oh, I have imposter syndrome, mic drop. It's like, I have imposter syndrome and there's things I can do about it. So I think it really helps people to frame it, to understand how it functions, to understand where it came from. So it doesn't feel so mysterious and if something's, that something's really wrong with you. Sure. And I, why I think that's really important and really helpful, particularly in a grad school environment is you're in this environment with lots of other people. And a lot of times you're all working on, you know, this similar things, but everyone is accomplished in their own. But that said, just because you're accomplished and just because you're talented doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy. And particularly in business school, it can be pretty challenging. And I, I, I remember, and I hear this conversation over and over again, it's like, for a lot of people, there's this light bulb moment of sometime in a couple months into the program for many people, where they're just shit, I'm overwhelmed, or I, I like, this is a lot more like, yeah. I'm not good at finance, or I'm not good at accounting. And a lot of people like collectively realize this and they're, they're like, wait, you're feeling that too? Or wait, you feel that way too? And it's yeah. almost just like this breath of uh, this this relief of, oh, I'm not the only one who feels this way. It's I'm not the only one who, I love this one. Uh, I snuck through the back door of admissions or admissions made a mistake on me or I snuck in. And yeah. No, this is what a lot of other people are, are feeling. Yeah, that it's a really legitimate feeling. And I think it's not until that moment that you begin to realize other people are feeling it, that you still feel a sense of freedom from it. And you're not feeling like you're not getting super paranoid that it's just you in this experience, that there's many other people. And I think it also can happen, especially in MBA programs, because of the nature of the, sometimes it's competitive, even if it's not outwardly sure. competitive, people who are there who have like years of experience or have other things that they've done have built companies or done all kinds of things. And so you really start to feel like, oh, I don't have that. And I'm not, I haven't done that. And so you start to feel inadequate in comparison to them. Right. And I think it evokes the imposter syndrome. I think you're spot on with that. The comparison trap is so difficult, particularly to your point in an environment where some of those external kind of markers, if you will, not only are they visible in the sense that other people have them, they're visible in the sense that's what you talk about, yeah. <laughs> at least in business school, right? It's like, like in, in the, it's always funny, like there's always this inflection point in the beginning where it's name, rank, and serial number, right? Yes. Like, where did you work before? What are you going to do here? That's what do you hope to go next? What are your companies are you looking at? And it's, I, I always talk to people about this. There are times when we're just like, wait, can we just talk about something else besides, <laughs> right. besides all those things? But I think it just, to your point, like, I think it just uh, exacerbates and just puts people under more of a limelight because it just is so pervasive in the conversations, in the dialogue, in just the way of uh, life sometimes um, in business school. So Yeah. And I think you point to an interesting aspect of it too, is that sometimes people feel like the credential itself, once mm -hmm. I get the MBA, then I'll feel more confident or then I'll feel like I can do X or Y or Z or build the company or do whatever it is that you're dreaming that you'll do. And what the research shows is that actually the more you actually escalate in your career, the, the worse it can become because you're right. more visible, you have more responsibilities, yeah. there's more opportunity to feel triggered for your imposter syndrome. It doesn't actually go away. It can actually worsen. 
Sure, sure. I, I, I think there's a couple things that come to mind when you're talking about this. Number one, that seminal study that basically says after you make about $75,000 a year, yeah. your happiness doesn't really increase. The other thing is just the general corporate treadmill, if you will. And then the last thing I think about, I'm a sports fan, Bill Simmons, who's a writer in his one of his books, he wrote about Pat Riley, the, the all-star like yeah. Hall of Fame head coach, yeah. who often talked about this idea of about the, the disease of more. And and over the context of, of Pat Riley, he talked about it in the sense that one of the reasons it's hard for any sports team at that level to continue to win consecutively is because the more that you win, the more that people want more. And you're basically, if you're the guy who was, or the gal who was playing 10 minutes a night, the next year you want 15. And yeah. if you're the one who had yeah, you scored know, this... like 20 points a game, now you got right. 25, like there's no ability to stay at scoring 20 because you've act, right. then you've considered you're considered to have plateaued, even if that's exactly. amazing. Exactly. And so it's so hard to thread the needle of peak per- at that level of how do we manage peak performance? Because you have to compete with people's egos and de- just our innate desires, I think, to want to continue reaching and getting to yeah. that next that next and run. It, it really also points to this piece of imposter syndrome, which is all about the addiction of of winning or mm-hmm. of gaining more or accomplishing more. Because once you get to, for example, with the NBA example, once you get the NBA, then it's, okay, where did you first land outside of your NBA? Then it's, okay, what am I going to do with that? What are my classmates doing? Like, I got to be able to... So it gets very... It never ends. It can really... And I think that's one of the important reasons why combating imposter syndrome is so important is because you need to get off this accomplishment treadmill because it, it will never end at certain points in your career. That's not what your career looks like. And it gets really depressing. And so you really have to think about what do you want? What do you need? What do you dream of? Not this compare and despair experience. Mm, yeah, 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 for sure. So one of the things that it strikes me is that Imposter syndrome just doesn't come out of nowhere. Like it, it appears appears to come out of nowhere, but it but it's always somewhere that back there if you look into it. And in chapter two of your book, you talk about this idea of the imposter syndrome origin story. Can you talk a little bit about what is that and, and why is it so important? I think a lot of people are like, how did I get this? What did I do wrong? And, and a lot of people wonder, oh, did I get it from social media? Or they have these ideas about where it may have come from. Even there was an article in HBR, a garbage article in HBR that I can't stand that was about like it comes from oppression. There's no research to support that it comes from oppression because there are many privileged groups that also experience imposter syndrome. But what the data and the research has found is that there are many correlations to early childhood experiences. And so what we talk about in the book in, in chapter two is what are some of the common child, early childhood experiences that lay the fertile groundwork of for, for imposter syndrome developing later on in life? And then some of them are being seen as either the smart one who didn't have to work hard. So every time you had to work hard, it seemed you were fooling everyone and everyone didn't really know you weren't that smart. The second one is the that you were the one who worked hard but weren't naturally talented at anything. So as a result, you never really looked at your natural gifts and talents and never saw them. The third one is a survivor. So that one is the one who doesn't have a lot of care, like a lot of caregiver support or feedback. And so their accomplishments were about surviving and getting away and getting out of things and away from things. So they're always feeling like potentially they're 
if they fail at something that everything's going to crumble around them because of the, the ways they early, the experience or their early accomplishments. There's also anger issues in the family that were not well controlled or well managed, codependence, a parent or parental caregiver figure who had narcissistic tendencies. There's a lot of different high people pleasing in the family. So there are a couple of different scenarios in the family that early on are experienced that, that kind of lay the fertile groundwork for imposter syndrome. And I think what, the reason why we talk about that is not so we can blame people or like, oh, that's it's this fault. It's that those early experiences, those templated experiences eventually then give us, make a deep connection between why we're currently triggered. So the, learning your early experiences, learning why your particular imposter syndrome developed helps you to understand why it shows up the way it shows up currently, which is what we need to do because we need to understand what your triggers are. Yeah, I thank you for sharing that. And I what I love about that is I, I absolutely agree with you. I think if I, you know, can think about this from my own point of view, and I think any time where I've ever struggled with something, like I can absolutely find things that happened early on in my life where you could see how the impact of those kind of larger situations show up in my mind, yeah. even all these years later. And one of the things that is really great about an MBA program is that it is a time for introspection and reflection. And so I can't think of a better place to, and I don't presume it's going to be easy for anyone, but to like go and do that work, to go and think about what are those things in my life that really have caused me a lot of challenge or pain, particularly early on. Yeah. And, and how do they connect to my current experience? Yeah. Why do they show up? Get to give an example. If you grew up in a place where you're, you only got praised for achievement, the only time anyone right. noticed you is when you had an achievement. They didn't notice you on a normal day and be like, you're just a great kid. You know, they were just, you had to do something that was impressive in order to get any kind of recognition. Then that's why you're still pushing hard to have these moments of accomplishment or win because you feel like this is the only time I ever get seen. Sure. And so breaking that for yourself and being like, I deserve to be seen even on my ordinary days is really important for you because otherwise you can't get off that rat race of accomplishment and feeling like you're never good enough. You know? Sure. Sure. One other concept you talk about in the book is this is the importance of ANTs. So what are ANTs and how can you manage them? Yeah, so ants, we call them ants, but they're automatic negative thoughts and it's a cognitive behavioral concept, but what happens is that you have a trigger um, for your imposter syndrome and then you have an automatic negative thought. So for example, you make a mistake and you're like, your automatic negative thought was, oh my God, that's the end of my career or that no one's ever going to respect me again. You get into these really absolutist or negative process, irrational thinking around it. And what's important to do is in knowing the ants is knowing, we, in the book, we help you to categorize them and teach you the categories of the ants. And the reason why we do that is to help you to understand how they're functioning and then um, identify them and then combat them. The idea is that you have to begin to create a counter narrative to the ant and begin to have a rational response to the trigger. But it takes understanding that you're having an automatic, oftentimes people don't even notice the thought. They don't even see the thought, but the thought is also affecting their behavior. So for example, if they're in the, in, with that example of the mistake, then next time they're going to be ultra meticulous about the next time they present. And then that's going to take them so much more time to present that it's going to create additional weight in there. So they make these heavy corrections for those kinds of experiences. And so I think it's so important to, to really be able to challenge the ant and to really allow yourself to have like latitude to be human and make mistakes and grow and like not be perfect all the time. So it's really an, a very important piece of combating the, the imposter syndrome. 
Thank you for giving that example. And I think just to keep going with it, particularly with something like public speaking, because as we all know, that's definitely one of the most yeah. common fears that's out there. I'm just curious how this plays out in the sense that I try not to project here, but one thing I've seen for myself in the past is just this notion of the ant and like understanding the trigger, but you get in your head like, oh, I'm not good at this. I need to be aware of this. And then it almost, for lack of a better word, incepts you into making the mistake that you're trying not to make or <laughs> yeah. doing that to do. It's to the like, self-sabotage yes, component exa of imposter exactly. syndrome. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So is that number one, it sounds like you've seen this before, but number two, yeah. how do you, cause yes, it's important to be cognizant, right? For sure. That's very helpful. But like, how do you get to a point where you can be in a, a space where you can acknowledge, but not necessarily let it self-sabotage you? Yeah, I think self-sabotage is, is a very interesting component and oftentimes is very connected to perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And because oftentimes self, the, a component of self-sabotage, especially for people with imposter syndrome, is procrastinating. There are many types of self-sabotage, but that's the one we see most often. Because oftentimes people with imposter syndrome are very good, even when they self-sabotage, they still can produce right. things. And so really it's beginning to recognize that you need to intervene on the performance anxiety immediately. So the minute you're, so you have a big talk, it's gonna you're very scared about it. Typically, we're going to avoid prepping for the talk until you have to, if you're going to self-sabotage. Instead, you're going to prep for the talk immediately, and you're going to develop a very scheduled behavior around preparing for the talk. So this happened when I was actually um, preparing for my TED Talk. So when I was preparing for my TED Talk, I, I had a major bout of imposter syndrome, and I was not prepping for my TED Talk. And if you're prepping for a TED Talk, most people know those things are prepared. They're scripted. They really have to be rehearsed very well because they have to hit a certain timing. And so I was not doing anything for weeks. And I and my husband was like, you do know what's happening. And I was like, yes, I know what's happening. He's like, you need to deal with it because I was totally avoiding it. And he was writing his half and I wasn't writing my half. And I had to sit down and, and face it. And I think one of the things that's important to recognize is like sometimes dealing with these things is painful. Like I had to sit down and write this TED Talk and it was not fun. It is not how you imagine doing a TED Talk. It's like some joyous experience. And you're just like, you're like, oh my God, this is so great. You know, it was like being tortured alive. It felt like I, I could feel the anxiety like running through my veins. And I think one of the things that was important was that I scheduled it. I, every day I worked on it for 45 minutes and kept plugging through it and didn't, I, I also have this desire because I'm a kind of perfectionistic underneath to finish it. So I would want to sit for 10 hours and finish the thing, but no, I had to do it in 45 minute bursts because at 10 hours, the anxiety is so painful and so bad. You don't ever want to do that again. And you've got to get a, you got to get better at modulating the anxiety and facing the experience in a very structured way. And I think the, the reason why I think, you know, it's so important to recognize the triggers and to, because oftentimes we then avoid them. I always avoided public speaking mm -hmm. because it caused yeah. so much anxiety for me. But one of the things we know as therapists is what, to get rid of a fear, you have to engage it in exposure with response prevention, which means you've got to keep public speaking yeah. and try to avoid and try to help modulate the anxiety that's coming up by using techniques and tools and skills but not avoiding it because that only blows up the anxiety related mm -hmm. to it. Like you were suggesting, you have to actually do it so much more. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that example. I love that. And I definitely it explains and a lot of the things that even I have thought about in my own career, because yeah, I particularly with something like public speaking, I can, I, it's just such a, it's such a visible thing, I think. And that's what I, when I think about public, that's the other thing, right? It's if you're, I'm just making this up here, but if let's just say you're not a great cook and you're a really bad cook and I don't know, your partner doesn't love your cooking. That's, that's a flaw and that's bad. And maybe you work at it and you don't get better, but that is within the realm of like your kitchen. 
with something like public speaking or putting your work out there into the world or to the workplace or to whatever, where it's seen by others, it can just feel so you can feel so exposed. Yeah. Right. Yes. Very vulnerable. And that's also you're pointing to a very important piece around imposter syndrome, which is that highly visible events are another very common trigger. And mm-hmm. public speaking feels very visible, especially nowadays where it's recorded and it's played over and over again. And it, it can be a very kind of scary, vulnerable experience. I remember when I was in grad school, my PhD program, uh, I had very successfully throughout my entire higher ed career, never really public sp- did any public speaking at all. I was the master of being in a group project and doing all the work and then letting somebody else present it. And then I was in my PhD program and I remember a faculty member saying to me, one of, one of my faculty members saying to me, I know what you're up to. She says, I see you. She's, I know what you're doing. She's, I know you're afraid to public speak and that you get away with it because you do all the work in the background. And she's, so she's, this is going to prevent you from actually really escalating in your career. It's going to, it's going to affect your opportunities as a psychologist. And and I think it affects a lot. Public speaking is very important for a lot of different careers. And so she said, from now on, you're going to speak, you're going to give a two hour lecture in my class every semester until you, you, you start dealing with this and then get better at it. And I remember the first time I gave the lecture in her class, I had written up like eight pages of notes, single space to give this lecture. And I started reading off of the notes. It was horrible. I knew the concept, but I was reading off of the notes and I broke out in hives and I, and the students in the class were like whispering to me, like, it's good. Yeah. You're doing yeah. a great job, which yeah. made it just 10 times time worse. worse. And she, she brought me into her office and she was like, how do you think that went? And I was like, it went really bad. She's like, yes. But she was like, the more you do it, the better you will get at it. And she was right. She yeah. was right. That's great. I, I have a similar story on a much smaller scale. So when I was maybe in fifth grade, my, my parents went to a parent-teacher conference. And for the most part, the feedback was very positive. And one of the things the teacher said was, Al's doing a great job, but one area where he can improve is public speaking. We had a, like a book report recently, and he did a really great job with it, but he either stammered or stuttered or wasn't as nearly as reflective of the work that we know that he put in. So my parents, who are wonderful, my dad, for the next like month, every day before he took me to school, he would make me practice public speaking in front of him. And it was so painful. I, I was like 10, 10 or 11, like I was 11. Like I would cry. Yeah. Like it's normal at that age, but like I was old enough to know what was going on. And it was so painful. And yeah. I remember crying and I remember it being hard. And eventually it stopped. And I don't necessarily know if I got infinitely better from doing it. But what I can tell you right now is that I have a podcast. I speak, have spoken in front of audiences of a thousand people and higher. I regularly speak with customers. I've talked, spoken in rooms and presented in rooms with C-suite executives at Fortune 500 companies. And I actually really enjoy it. Yeah. And so, again, I don't necessarily know if in the moment I, I got infinitely better at delivering a book report. But what I can tell you now is that I thoroughly enjoy being in front of an audience. And I can't help but think that my dad helping me lean into something that I clearly could have been a lot better at, even if it was scary, actually helped me move forward from it. Yeah, it's it, your dad, your dad engaged in exposure with response prevention, but he didn't even realize it. I think that's it's you ha- it's when you're especially something like public speaking, when you're not good at it, the key is to do it more and mm-hmm. to deal with the anxiety. Like the, clearly, we may not be crying, but we'd be crying inside. <laughs> because yeah. like, it, it's really rough in the beginning when you're trying to get better at it. And I think the other piece for me I, I have learned in dealing with my own imposter syndrome is to really 
allow myself to be me and be human yeah. when I publicly yeah. speak and, I, and not get caught up with, oh, I said, or, oh, I use verbal fillers, or I didn't use the right word here. I just am like, look, I'm going to be me and that's going to be fine. But I think really allowing myself to be human and knowing as long as I'm co correctly illustrating the points that I'm making, the perfection of it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. So I want to transition to another topic that and we briefly touched on this because it's in the work that you do. But one area where imposter syndrome really comes up is in the job and career search, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in an MBA program where, again, not only are you doing it, but you're doing it where, when everyone else is doing it. And it's almost like being in a racquetball room where the, everything is reverberating. And so not only are you hearing what you're doing, but you're hearing what everyone else is doing. So could you maybe talk about like what is happening? How can and how can students really manage through this in an effective way? Yeah, so I think one of the most important pieces is to recognize there are some really strong correlates to job search and imposter syndrome. So when you have imposter syndrome, you typically feel less deserving to negotiate the salary. You also typically struggle to feel your worth or value or communicate your worth or value accurately. It can also be very, it can be also very hard to compete because you feel less than the people that you're competing because we all, we have a tendency to overvalue others and undervalue ourselves. I think it is key when you have imposter syndrome and you're in a job search is to find community and, and non-competitive community, <laughs> like community to be like, I got this and I got that. What about you? It's more like, I'm struggling. Here's what I'm doing. What are you doing? What resources are you using? Like a collaborative community to get better at the process and not a competitive community. So I think it can be really helpful to have community around it. I think it can be helpful to recognize the places where you faltered before in job search, whether you've not negotiated, whether you've underestimated yourself, whether you've had trouble articulating who you are and what you want, because that's another hard thing for us. It's really working on those things very proactively, which can mm -hmm. feel very scary and feel like we're being we're overselling ourselves and being narcissistic, which it is not. We do not have the DNA to be, be narcissistic and because of our own histories. We just don't have the, when I say DNA, environmental DNA to experience that. So I think we often worry that we're going to come across as like just full of ourselves. And it's just, it isn't, we're not going to do that, but we're going to accurately be able to communicate who we are and what we can do. And I think that's what you've got to work on pretty proactively. Yeah, no, it's, it is what you, I think what you said of moving in a way where you, it's okay to be around others, but in a way that is supportive and honest and not just focused on the external markers, right? Of, yeah of what job or what company or, or what Yeah, because you get an interview for them, yeah. this big firm that only interviews a certain percentage. Or, exactly. You really got to figure out what you want and, and focus on that and knowing that the competition is not necessarily helpful for you. It actually is detrimental to your feeling of being able to sustain throughout. There. And also, I think, and something that we've talked about a little bit, your journey is your journey. And the job that someone else gets or the internship that someone else gets, that may not be your journey. And there really isn't a need to want to compare yourself to that and make feel less than because it's apples and oranges, yeah. right? Yeah. And just because you don't get the top internship or the top job, you know, doesn't mean your career is going to be crap. It actually, it just means your career is going to take you in a particular direction and to value that direction and value what you want and, and how mm -hmm. you're going to get there strategically and stop the compare and despair. It's a very useless. Yeah. Problem. Yeah. One more thing on this topic, because you brought it up earlier. So I think a lot of times, many of us, myself included, have this notion that careers go like one of those nice graphs that just goes and goes up and to the right. Yeah. And you you just keep going. But 
I don't think that's necessarily true. And it, but a lot of times that's what we look out and we see because we see people we admire or we see people who are idolized or whatever. And we just look at where they are and where they started and just assume it kind of went like this. And I definitely can think I can see even for my own self, that is sometimes where imposter syndrome comes into play or people I talk to when they're like, oh, I'm not where I'm not where I should be, or I'm not as far along as I should be, or I'm not at the level that I should be at given whatever they're hooking onto. And so I'm just curious, how can you manage through that? Because it's so, it, it, again, I think we're just so conditioned to, to look out right into the, to the universe and to see what others are doing and then feel less of ourselves. Yeah. It's never feel better. Generally, it's not feel better. <laughs> yeah, it's usually yeah. feel less than. And I think what's yeah. so important is to manage your expectations about your career yeah. and being like really, I used to have a, a mentor that said, hindsight on your career is always linear. So you, when you tell yes. the story about how it goes, it's just always, oh, this went yeah. to this and this went to that. Yeah. But it, what, what it feels like in real life is that you are more of an amoeba. You're like, you're mm-hmm. here, then you're there, then you're yeah. backward, then you're up, then you're up, down. So he, he was illustrating the point that career doesn't have, doesn't go in a linear fashion, although we tell it in a linear fashion. And so I think it's really important to recognize that you can gain things from all kinds of experiences and you should be focused on that. You should be focused on the growth mindset and not necessarily, what are you learning from this? What are you gaining? What's coming from this experience? Not necessarily that it appears outwardly that you're going up in an upward trajectory. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important and for you to really be able to appreciate. And, And if it's not going that way, if it's not going right, fix it. See a coach, get help, like figure out what's going wrong. That's not making you happy in it. But I think really not allowing yourself to get caught in these things because it's, you're only going to, that's what they call it, compare and despair because you're only going to feel bad looking at other people. Like Mm -hmm. I hear this all the time. It's, oh, that person graduated with me. They're two titles ahead of me. And it's like, why are you doing that? You like your job. You're happy. You have have the things you want to have. It's not a useful comparison point. We don't know what that job looks like. We don't know what their plans are. We don't know how they got it. We don't know all these contextual factors that you are not seeing, but yet judging yourself up against them. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Lisa, thank you so much for coming today and for having this conversation. It's been phenomenal for me on my end. I really do appreciate you coming and talking about such an important topic. For our audience out there, Lisa Orbe Austin, a psychologist and executive coach and the author of Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt and Succeed in Life. If people want to learn more about you or learn more about your work or engage further, where can they find you? So I'm pretty active on Instagram and my handle is Dr. Orbe Austin. And I'm also a LinkedIn top voice. So I'm pretty active there too and write some newsletters on imposter syndrome and career there. So you can follow me on um, LinkedIn. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.